Well, let's be seated. So this Advent, we're looking at Jesus through the ministry of John the Baptist. And I do invite you, please, to turn to Luke chapter 3 and glance through the passage for today. And as you look through it, perhaps you notice that it's almost as though John has read a book on how to grow a church and then done the complete opposite of everything it says. Now, how he looks, where he is, and what he says ought to be an evangelistic disaster. Start with his appearance. Last week, we heard that he wears this camel jacket, and it's not a fancy brand. It's just the skin of an actual camel wrapped around with a leather belt, and he was poorly dressed. Very few people would look at him and have this kind of sense of affinity with the preacher and think, wow, I want to be that guy. I know how he feels. John was poorly dressed. He ate disgusting things. His diet was gross, we heard last week. Very few people would identify with him. Now, as for the location of his church, that was horrible as well. Verse 4 says he was in the wilderness. It means a desolate, completely uninhabited place. So I will never complain again about this clerical clothing or American food, or the location of our church ever again, I promise. Well, I probably won't do it. And then bizarrely, people start to attend. It's so weird, isn't it? They start to come to his church, and then it gets worse, because he starts to speak. And as he speaks, (laughs) I know, as he speaks, he starts to tell them about their sin. And Oh, if there was ever a word that you should avoid, surely it's the word sin. You can't talk to people about their sin, can you? You can't tell people they're wrong. Because if you tell people that they're wrong, they'll go and find someone who tells them that they're right, won't they? And John not only preaches sin, he preaches the judgment of God, the vengeance of God, the wrath of God. And he does all of this without cloaking or dissembling or watering down or dressing it up in any way at all. Then come the illustrations. The welcome part of the sermon, where we can all have a chuckle. And he gets this bit wrong as well. Because in verse 7, he calls them a brood of vipers. Just imagine if Ben had started the service that way. Good morning, snakes. How are you? (laughs) I mean... How rude! He describes them, it gets worse, he describes them as rotten trees in verse 9 and chaff in verse 17, both of which are to be burned in the fires of hell. Then comes the application section. And he turns to their way of life and he says, if you turn to God for whatever reason, he will lay a demanding claim on your belongings and your business and your bank account as well. That's verses 12, 13, and 14. Horrible dinner party guest. In verse 8, he starts to talk about religion, and he attacks this as well. He says, you guys, you're walking around thinking you're holy, and you're not. Remember, this is a speech given in part to Jews who have this ancient covenant with God, this long walk with the Lord, these People trace their relationship with God all the way back to Abraham. 
And think about all those promises to Abraham to bless the nations through them. Think of the story of God. Think of Moses and the escape from Egypt. Think of the promised land and the building of the temple. Think of David. Think of Solomon. Think of exile and think of return from Babylon. Think of all of the ways in which God has blessed these people and all of the stories they have. And he says to them in verse 8, don't come out here telling me all about Abraham, believing that God somehow by right of birth is required to let you in just because your parents were the right sort. Rubbish. Oh, but I was baptized as a baby. Big deal. You still are one, mate, he says to them. The stones have a closer relationship with God than you do. It's a classic model of church. Gather and preach. It's a classic model of sermon. Introduce, explain, illustrate, apply. We do both of these things every single week. But it is hard to imagine anything worse than this talk in that place, is it not? And yet, right, he speaks to a crowd, it says in verse 7. It's a pretty neat trick in a desert. They flock to hear this stuff. This is weird. Then in verse 18, Luke records that this litany of insults and abuse wrapped up in some absolutely terrible communication techniques was received by them as good news. He proclaimed it, verse 3. I love this word, proclaim. We include that word in our Eucharistic prayer at Holy Communion. It's a wonderful word, proclaim. It means to publish. It means to herald. It means to share in a winsome way. It means to give a piece of news to people in a way that persuades them. And then he says in verse 18, or verse 18 says that he spoke to them with many other exhortations. An exhortation is a comforting word. He spoke to them with many other comforting words. I'm not sure if it was the the snakes or the hell talk that gave him this funny, fuzzy feeling inside. But you know, something clicked with these guys as he spoke. And he preached good news to the people. In the original language, preached good news is all one word. I love this. It literally means he good newsed them. Isn't that cool? He good newsed them. And it's written, nerd alert for you. You want to do a deep dive into what this word really means. It's written in the middle voice, which means that somehow it was done to them passively and yet received by them actively at the same time. My translation of he good news to them is this. He wrapped them up and enfolded them in and identified them with the good news such that it became part of who they were. He soaked them in the good news. He steeped them in the good news. Think about a you know, fruit for a Christmas fruitcake. It's just, it becomes the defining essence of who they are, this good news. They came out dry and they, and they left soaked with the good news. What a wonderful image for us. Camels, insects, desert. There is the setting. Snakes, wrath, and sin. There's the theology. Dead wood, chaff, fires of hell. There's the illustrations. What is the application of all of this? Do you remember? Clear out your closet, trash your business, 
drain your bank account, or as Ben so wonderfully has summarized it in one word of this sermon title, repent, exclamation mark. And they loved it. Welcome to the weirdest religion on earth. They loved this stuff. They're like, oh, yeah, come on, let's have some more, John. Why would such a rude and demanding talk shared in such a ridiculous and defensive way ever bring comfort? Why would anybody in their right mind hear a speech like this and think that a call to repent is good news? Let's go back to verse 3. Zoom in on verse 3 specifically. Why is the call to repent good news, do you think? A recap, verse 3 says this, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's go backwards through the verse and let's start at the end. Let's start with the word sin. You cannot see how good the good news is until you first see how bad the bad news is. The word sin in Greek, hamartia, is bad news. It literally means to miss the mark. That's what this word means. It's a piece of picture language that we've examined before. It describes what an arrow does when it's shot from a bow and it flies through the air and it heads towards the the target, but it misses. You know, it falls short because there's not enough energy or you, you overshoot and it goes up or the wind blows it wide and it misses that bullseye, the mark, the, the, the target. And I want you to imagine that that target and in particular the bullseye of that target is God's perfect standard for you. That is God's desire for every aspect of your life, that you are as perfect as he is. And your task is simple. All you have to do is hit the target every single time, past, present, and future, in everything you do and have done, whether deliberate or by accident, just hit that perfect target every single time, and you will live up to God. Sin is any deviation from that task, by any means, by any amount, at any time. And sin can be planned, can't it? It can be by design. Sometimes we sit down and we come up with one to do. Uh, Sin, the word hamartia, can include the idea of something planned that is clearly wrong, deliberately missing the target. And sin, hamartia, this beautiful picture language, it can mean just as an arrow strays when it's blown off course. It can mean uh, like straying off course on a path or a journey, getting lost, getting tangled up in the weeds and straying from the path. Maybe you're tired. Maybe your guard is down and you make a mistake and when you look up, you realize you don't know where you are anymore. Sin means all of those things. It's a huge word. And here is the bad news. We all do it. That Romans 2 reading says, we all do it. And of course, not only do we all do it, because we all do it, we all have it done to us as well. And we live in a world that is fallen and tainted and corrupted by sin. And we live with the consequences of sin as if we needed a reminder of that during a pandemic. Loneliness, sickness, bereavement, distress, the loss of loved ones and the fear of the loss of loved ones. Sin is behind it all. 1662 prayer book. You might know the words from 1928. If you're watching in England, uh, 1928 was an illegal prayer book over there. 
and uh, don't read it, you'll get arrested. But in America, it's okay. And write one, 1979, same prayer through all of these prayer books, and it says this, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. This sort of image, I think Calvin would have called this total depravity. The idea, whether you frame it positively or negatively, nobody is perfect, and we all sin. Karl Barth, I love this, my favorite quote from any theologian, he says, we belch forth the vapors of our sin. What a wonderful image, this idea of sin being this uncontrollable garlic burp that just sort of comes up from within. You know, you, you ate it, and you, you think, I'll just sneak it out the corner of my mouth. No one will notice, but they notice. It's coming up, and it smells, and there's no way of stopping it. That's what sin is. Kat had a job in a small office, Christian charity, and uh, one day in the small office, smaller than the chancel in which I'm speaking to you right now, and everybody crammed in, windows painted shut, and the heating jammed on, interesting place to work. One day in this tiny room, there was a terrible smell in the office, and it was very strong. And uh, awkwardly, they deduced that the smell was actually coming from the boss. And suspicions were raised when he started making quite lengthy trips to the bathroom. It was absolutely unbearable in this tiny space. And so while he was out, a vote was held, and it was decided that the most serious member of the staff team, the company accountant, would have to speak to the boss privately about this unpleasant odour. And uh, they all left and left them to it to have a discussion. And the boss feigned ignorance, just completely denied it. Now, we all know how the rhyme ends, don't we, about whoever denied it. It was very obviously him. You cannot hide your sin. You can't disguise it. Everybody can see it. Everybody can smell it. There's no keeping it in. It will come out. It will manifest at some point. And it will humiliate you when it does. And it will harm those around you when you do it. And sin is an epic problem that we cannot fix ourselves. We can't deny it. We can't hide it. We can't cover it over. We can't fix it. We can't keep it in. And at this point, many of us do some theology. And we become theological relativists. And we go, all right, I put my hands up. I've missed the mark. I do sin. I do sometimes have a garlic burp. I admit it. I do, I do, I do. But... At least I'm not as bad as that guy over there. I'm not, I'm not actually specifically pointing at Robert. <laughs> just an illustration. <laughs> but, you know, that's what we do. We just simply look around. We go, okay, right, fine. Let's grade on a curve, shall we? Let's find someone worse, and then I can find some comfort in that. And our reading from Romans 2, the one that says we all sin, says that the idea of grading on a curve is a mistake as well. It is true. Some of us sin more than others. Some of us are worse than others, and some sins are worse than others. But in the end, the effect is identical. Because you only have to miss that mark. That's all. If you were shipwrecked in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the winter, in the middle of a storm, and next to you in the sea, there was an Olympic swimmer, 
with flippers on and a pool noodle. The only difference between the two of you would be which of you were to drown first. The other guy would drown a mile closer to the shore, but still a thousand miles away from safety. And when John starts to talk about sin, I think they listen because deep down they know it's true. But like at last someone is being honest about our problem here. And I think they're tired of sin. I think they're exhausted with it. I think they're tired of trying to hide it, tired of trying to fix it themselves. I think they're afraid of its effects, and I think what they want is some hope. They know hope is not going to come from denial, and hope is not going to come from more effort, you know, just swim harder. Hope is not going to come from grading on a curve and finding someone worse. And so still working backwards through just verse 3, John gives some hope with one little word. Forgiveness. Your sins, all of them, can be forgiven. To forgive, it means to deliver or release. You can be rescued from your sin. Now in verse 10, the crowd sends a buying signal. They ask, what shall we do? They ask this question an awful lot in Luke, what shall we do? It's a sign that they are taking him seriously. And he responds, he simply says, this is what you need to do, repent. It really is that simple. Luke uses the word repent more than all three other gospel writers combined. It is his response to this frequent question, what shall we do? Repent. And it's not a bad word, repent. Sin is a bad word. But when you see how bad it is, the word repent, you realize is a great word. It's a nice word. It just means turn away. Turn away from your sin. And as you turn away from your sin, turn toward your savior. That's all it means. Instead of trying to swim to land, just turn around. Because what you couldn't see was that the whole time you were panicking on your own in the dark, there was a lifeboat right behind you. And your saviour was ready to jump in and rescue you. Repentance is good news because it leads to a rescue. Repentance is good news because as we repent, we are saved. And it's not the act of repentance that saves you unless you think that's another work to do. It is your saviour that saves you, which is why we call him the saviour. But he jumps in, he gets into the sin, into the mess, into the storm for you and with you to redeem you and rescue you from your sin and to do the thing that you've never been able to do. Then, when you've repented, live like you've repented, verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And again, your fruits are not going to save you. They appear only because you have been saved. And look who bears it. Look who bears fruit. Here's more good news for you. Look at the types of people that become fruit bearers. Tax collectors, verse 12, they're terrible people. Extortionists, hated by all. I'm talking in a historical context here, of course, not about present-day tax collectors. But in the day, many tax collectors would purchase uh, uh, the right to collect taxes from the Roman government. And then, in order to make money for themselves, they would add a little bit to the tax to line their own pockets. They were seen as collaborators by the uh, Jews, and they were looked down upon as unclean. They were hated by all, and they bear fruit 
You want to grade on a curve? I'll tell you who's lower down the curve than you. It's a tax collector. Soldiers, verse 14, it's getting worse. These are enemies. These soldiers are pagan, Roman, occupying enemy forces. And they turn to God. And they bear fruit. They walk away transformed, along with many Jews. The Jews that were there took an enormous risk to go out to this desert place, to risk uncleanness, to hang out with this crowd, to go and hear this weird preacher who's undermining so much of what they heard in the temple and the synagogues back home. Why did they do it? Why did they take the risk? Because they were tired. They were sick of sin, sick of self-help. And they wanted some hope, didn't they, outside of themselves. So sometimes, I actually think a desert place can be a good thing. I think a weird guy with a difficult word in a place that is hard to get into reveals who really wants it. I think COVID-19 has done us a favor, actually. I think if you're here today in this room with me, which you are, or, or you're watching online, which you are, or you're listening on the delay on the podcast, you have made a huge effort to do that right now. You, very deliberate, you didn't roll out of bed and do it. You chose to do this. Masks, sign-up sheets, getting a pot of communion by a man wearing PPE, um, online options, assigned seats, someone blasting you in the head with a laser as you come in to see what your temperature is today. And uh, th- these, these activities do not come from the How to Grow a Church manual, right? Like, if you were trying to wreck a church, that'd be a really great way to start, wouldn't it? And the, the experience that we're having right now is hopelessly inferior to the one that we would prefer to be having. And yet, you're here enormously significant, hugely encouraging to me, that anybody would bother to listen to this in any format absolutely amazes me right now. And it tells me that you want something. It's a buying signal. It tells me that you want some hope. It tells me that you're sick of sin. It tells me that you love the good news or you want to hear it and receive it for the first time. It's the only explanation. It's like John, isn't it? John's ministry is a textbook way to offend a church and yet they received it as good news because it was true they came out like we have to a desert burdened with sin they left suffused with the good news they left their sin with Jesus and they left with the good news let's pray God heavenly father we ask that you would wrap us up and fold us in the good news. Good news us, please. Deliver us from sin. And as we repent, we keep repenting. We thank you, God, that you keep rescuing, that you have redeemed us once and for all on the cross, and that you are still with us, and that you will come again to complete this work. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray, and find us ready. Amen.